I've spent the last few years working for one of the largest shockwave clinics in North America, and I've learned a thing or two about the power and untapped potential of regenerative medicine. But the march towards a future where sickness is healed from its root cause is challenged by the influence of big pharma and their deep pockets. So now we're forced to answer questions like, how do we get rid of joint pain, take back our performance in the bedroom, and heal diseases from the inside out without band-aid medications or negative side effects? This show will give you the answers. Follow along as I interview the world's top experts and doctors and how they transform their lives and their patients' lives using the newest advances in biotechnology. I'm your host, Austin James Wolf, and you're listening to Modern Biotech Radio. What's up, Rocket Nation? I'm your host, Austin James Wolf, and today we have a very special guest. This is Brooke Sproul. She is the founder and clinical director of My LA Therapy. Thanks for jumping on the show, Brooke. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So the reason why I reached out in the first place is because uh, I was I was looking for you know good sex good sex therapists to interview on the show because uh, men our our customers and clients they're guys uh, who just you know they want to have better sex they want to have better intimacy with their partners and so I thought you know what what better way to uh, help them out than to interview uh, certain sex therapists. Absolutely. Just to clarify, I'm not technically a sex therapist. I am a psychotherapist. I work with erectile dysfunction. I work with kink BDSM. I work with intimacy and sexual issues, couples, relationships. Um, but I'm not technically a sex therapist. I just want to represent myself that yes, I work with those issues, but not like certified or right. Right. That makes sense. Cool. Sweet. Well, uh, let me ask you this. Um, you talked about helping men with erectile dysfunction and uh, other sexual related issues. Uh, is that technically considered sex therapy or is that more uh, what you called it? Was it uh, psycho? I, I, I'm a psychotherapist. Okay, and got it. Sexual issues, but a sex therapist would have specific training in a range of issues. Okay, cool. Related to sex, whereas I have some training in that and right. certain experience with certain issues. Um, but I'm not, I don't really have the same breadth and depth as a sex therapist, really just with that one particular issue regarding, uh, regarding sex therapy and then other issues regarding like intimacy, communication and couples. Right. Okay. Let me ask you this. Uh, if you had to, if you had to define it to one thing, what's like your superpower when it comes to helping people? My superpower is identifying unconscious anxieties and defense mechanisms and getting into the unconscious forces that are driving them, um, teaching people to identify, become aware of them, um, regulate their anxiety and get to the deeper conflict or feeling underneath. So people don't realize they're anxious half the time and performance anxiety during sex is a perfect example of that. Right. Um, And so for me, understanding, teaching somebody to recognize what is it that's tipping off that we know they're anxious. There's so many different pathways to anxiety Yeah. um, and people don't realize what they are. So, you know, we know that racing heart is anxiety. We know that racing thoughts are anxiety, but um, there's a lot of different, ways that anxiety can manifest. It can be dizziness. It can be mind going blank. It could be feeling sick to your stomach. It could be, um, you know, showing tension in the body. And so I'm really, um, honed in on looking at cues that you may not be aware of that are signaling us that you're anxious. And anytime there's anxiety, there's something deeper. There's a deeper feeling, there's a conflict. And then when we get to that thing that's underneath, that's driving that anxiety, we can work through it. We can release it. And then the symptom goes away. Right, right. Is is there like a common, I guess, thread that you see that most people have? Is, the, is there a common thing that gives them this anxiety or is there a common root cause? So avoidance is kind of the, you know, 
at the essence of anxiety. Really? Engine of anxiety. Yeah. Anytime we avoid something, mm -hmm. then we're not facing that underlying thing and it can't get, can't get released. There's like a backlog. There's a um, pressure valve that gets kind of um, capped. And so when we avoid things, then they, they build up inside of us and it creates this kind of chronic anxiety. Yeah. And so facing those things and um, facing things that we're afraid of, facing feelings, um, resolving conflicts, resolving underlying trauma, looking at things that are ugly that we don't want to look at. Um, that is really, you know, so if, if, if avoidance is the engine of anxiety, then exposure or facing what's feared is the antidote to it. Right. That makes sense. And without, um, I guess, discussing or breaking doctor-patient confidentiality, is there a common thing that you find that men who might have performance anxiety, is there a common thing that you find that they are avoiding? Is there a common theme uh, within the avoidance? So... In this case, what I experience, I mean, there's a combination of factors. For the first time in history, we're seeing erectile dysfunction in men in their 20s. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes, this has never happened before. Because <sighs> wow. You can see more naked women in a span mm -hmm. of 60 seconds than they used to be able to see in an entire lifetime. Right. So their brains are actually becoming desensitized mm -hmm. to stimuli that would normally provoke arousal. And right. so um, when you know, when you watch porn, it actually changes your brain. You develop a tolerance in the same way that if you drink a lot of alcohol, you develop a tolerance to alcohol and then it becomes less powerful. If you never drink, one glass of wine makes you tipsy. Right. If you drink every day, you know, it doesn't even affect you at all. So it's a similar thing with porn. And because men are biologically wired to be visual and um, biologically wired, quite frankly, to you know, have a lot of partners and have a strong drive toward, um, toward sex, especially in their 20s. Um, it's really the fact that porn is at like the tips of our fingers. It's really hard to resist. You know, it's just so easy. It's so right. obnoxious. And I'm not saying it's wrong or bad, um, but finding a balance and making sure that it's not creating excess um, is really important because otherwise, you know, men just can't get excited about one naked woman in front of them. I mean, right. it's really, it's really sad. Um, but there's also a piece of, I think, porn culture that, you know, um, creates some unrealistic expectations, not only in, in the sense of, you know, um, men's expectations of women or, or their, um, what, what, you know, gives them uh, arousal, but also in terms of how they have to perform, like, you know, right. they, have to, yeah. they have to be this, be like this rock star, you know, that's, doing 20 videos a day. Yeah, so that really contributes to performance anxiety and, you know, um, and, and also feelings of self-worth and self-esteem get wrapped up in, um, you know, per performance, sexual performance. I mean, that's what it means to be a man, right? Right. It's like these conquests or these, um, you know, the way you perform. And there's a lot in the culture that is just constantly, kind of bombarding men in the same way that women are constantly bombarded with the messages that their value is in their beauty or their value is in their youth. Men are bombarded with, you know, messages that, you know, how big their dick is or how long they can go is their right. Word. And, you know, it's, it's really damaging and it's, it's certainly, it's just not true. I mean, there's some people that buy into all that, but those aren't the people you want in your lives. Right. Right. I agree. I agree. Well, let's say, let's say a guy is suffering from, um, 
performance anxiety because he's, um, you know, watching porn every day and, and now he's like starting to get into his head. Um, what sort of treatment would you recommend uh, this guy do to overcome that? Well, you really have to, you know, talk through these underlying issues and causes. Um, you really have to, I mean, you really have to restrict your porn. Um, yeah. Use, you know, that's a big part of it. But it's also kind of, um, you know, working with false beliefs, irrational thoughts through cognitive therapy. So dealing with um, ways that your expectations of yourself are unrealistic and finding more balanced ways of seeing the world. And then also really getting to like, why is my worth wrapped up in my performance, whether it's in sex or whether it's in other areas of our lives, um, that's ego. And right. ego is inherently fragile because our circumstances are always changing. Our circumstances, um, you know, we can never rely on the external to stay the same. And therefore, if our sense of self is reliant on the external, it's subject to the whims of life and it's always right. changing. And our, you know, one moment we're on top of the world and the next moment we're a worthless piece of crap, you know? So, right. and forgive my um, obscenities. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. We've had worse on the show. <laughs> um, so in any case, you would want to look at the cognitive piece through cognitive behavioral therapy and restructuring thoughts, um, as well as sort of the self-worth piece, the underlying feelings like where did you learn that your worth is based on not just who you are, but on what you do, on how you perform, on you know your sexual prowess, on how many women you can, can get. Um, that's not real self-worth. That's a very shallow way to define yourself. Right. And um, and that's a, something that's a much deeper issue that we have to kind of look at the past and, and the influences that shaped you. Usually your parents modeled that for you in some way and you've internalized that. Even, you know, one of the interesting things that I found is and it, in my own personal psychotherapy and then working with others, you know, my parents are lovely and supportive and they actually didn't put pressure on me. They encouraged me, they pushed me, but they never really like had this like high expectations that I needed to do this, this and this. Yeah. To, loved and actually I excelled because of that because I, right. I didn't have that pressure I was motivated um, to achieve on my own but they're very hard on themselves they're very they can be perfectionistic in certain ways and so I internalized that even though they weren't giving me that message right. so something that people often don't realize is they go gosh I'm broken because my parents were so great and they were so supportive so this must be my problem and it's like yeah but not what did they say but what did they model to you um, that is the, that is what mm. children um, internalize through osmosis. You know, it's like how your parents relate socially, how they deal with their anxiety and defenses. We tend to adopt the same um, coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms that our parents model to us. Right. Wow. That's that's super interesting, huh? I'll have to look out for that one. Uh, let me ask you this: um, Is there something? That if guys come to you for therapy, what's something that they can do by themselves that might give them uh, better results through the therapy? Like, is there something that they can do either before they see you or while they're seeing you, you know, by themselves? Is there an exercise they can do that uh, can really amplify the, the results and the benefits they're going to get? Well, it's really an individual thing. Um, you know, my interventions are tailored to the individual. And it's right. 
if you watched like my therapy session with one person and my therapy session with another person, they could feel completely different. Right. Like with some people I'm going into visualization, I'm going into like the body and you know, what different sensations are coming up and kind of, you know, you really, the way to act, you know, the body is the landscape of the unconscious. So the, and, and the visual, the metaphor, kind of the realm of the right brain is yeah. where the unconscious lives. And our culture is very left brain heavy and, pop psychology says, just analyze everything. And if you just understand that this happened to you in your childhood, this is why you behave like that. That's healing. That's BS. (laughs) Most people come in and they can analyze themselves (laughs) so they're blue in the face. But until we actually get to the unconscious forces, nothing's going to change. But the, you know, I'm kind of getting off track with your question, but I'll finish this thought and then answer it. Um, So in any case, like with some people, I'm really working on the cognitive level. I'm really working with their thoughts because they're in their left brain and they can't, they're not ready to go into the experiential, into the, I mean, we're still working with the unconscious and bringing awareness to things that are, you know, blind spots um, in a different way. Yeah. Um, but we're not just analyzing. And in fact, if somebody's just um, intellectualizing, which is a defense mechanism, I'm going to point that out to them and draw yeah. them into like what's beneath that. Yeah. Um, other people, like I said, I'm going like super deep into these like, you know, very, sometimes the, the visuals can be like, it's like, just go with whatever's in your head. It's a little bit of yeah. a psychoanalytic approach and, you know, surprising things come up. Like hmm. well, I'm, um, I'm in a dirt hole or like, you know, and like there's snakes around me or like, you know, it's like really cool kind of mythical imagery that you, that you work through and you work with. Um, in any case, in answer to your question, I think the number one, um, thing to do to make therapy most effective is to come in with a humble disposition, but also to trust yourself. Like, don't just defer to a therapist and like, oh, they have this degree. So whatever they say is right. You still have to check in with your gut. You still need to make sure you have a therapist that you trust that challenges you that, you know, you really intuitively go, yes, this is right. Um, But you, but you need to come in with the ability to be wrong and the ability to reevaluate yourself. Because if you come in knowing it all and you know, no one can help you and you're the smartest person in the room. Um, you know, I work with really smart people, people who are smarter than me, but that doesn't mean that I can't challenge them psychologically. And right. That I have a skill set or a type of intelligence or experience that, you know, uh, is, is valuable to them. Um, and I, it's, it's really fun for me to go toe to toe with like people who are like geniuses, you know, yeah. near 200 IQ, you know. And oh my God, that sounds fun. It's so fun. It's yeah. Like, challenge them is a little bit, that's probably my own like little ego boost and maybe not the best. But a little pat on the back. Fun, yeah, it's a fun puzzle and it's a yeah. fun challenge. And, you know, um, and I just, I kind of, I kind of love the intellectual um, aspect and the creative aspect of working with different kinds of people. Yeah. It's like every session is different. Right. Cause everyone's different. Okay. I, I got a question for you. So uh, I was, I was working with, uh, I have a life coach and I was working with him and there was, I had a really bad breakup and you know, I was trying to solve it intellectually for like a year. Like it, it was bad. And I, I finally asked him like, okay, I need your, yeah, exactly. I need your help on this. And you know what he said? He said, he asked me, he goes, Austin, we can solve this two ways. He said, you can either, we can either solve it with your right brain or your left brain. And I don't know, something inside of me knew that the right brain would actually work because I've been trying to use my left brain and analyze myself out of the situation. So I was like, let's go right brain. And, and, and it worked. You know, we got to the root cause of the issue and we were able to, you know, 
change certain beliefs that I had. Go right brain. Like what um, tools did you use to access that? (laughs) Oh man. God. (laughs) Well, after, afterwards I felt like I like blacked out, you know, for a sec. So (laughs) let me, uh, let me think It, it was, gosh, it was really getting into the feelings of what I was, what I was feeling back then, what I was feeling right now right. and you know, what I could be feeling in the future. So getting into your emotional experience. Yeah. What a lot of people do is they rationalize. They go, and actually my book is called why you should date emotionally unavailable men use your unhealthy relationships to transform. And it's, it's, I, I, I read it toward women because it, the culture is like, you know, directed toward women. The man is emotionally right. available, but yeah. it can apply to men as well. Um, and you know, what happens is we go, this partner is wrong for me because X, Y, and Z. And so I need to be over them and I need to move on and I need to break up. But if you haven't actually learned the lessons that are presented to you within the relationship, um, you are not, uh, you're not going to move on. You're either going to keep getting back together or you're going to stay apart and obsess and not, not, not move forward. Or you're going to repeat, most likely, um, you're going to repeat the same dynamics with the next person until you use this relationship as a mirror to see your own mm-hmm. blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to, um, you're not going to to get the um, the experiential shift. You're just going to get, oh, this person's wrong for me. You're going to scapegoat them, yeah. and you're not going to see your role and how you co-create the problems. Everybody, like, we have such a stupid approach in the West toward thinking about emotions and thinking about relationships. It's like very binary. It's you're right, you know, or I'm right, you're wrong. Um, and then we get into this like lawyering match and this tug of war of who's right and who's wrong. And in every instance, we're both right and we're both wrong. Yeah. In every instance. You know, even in instances where one partner is being really abusive, there are ways in which the other person is complicit. Now, that's not to excuse the horror of abuse or minimize it. Right. That's still wrong. And that's, there's no justification for that. Um, but until we look at the ways that we're complicit, until we look at the ways that we're playing into the cycles and behavior, we're never going to move on. Um, even if we move on with a particular partner, we're going to still have, you know, First of all, the, you know, like I said before, we're going to repeat the same dynamics with other partners or get back together. But regardless, we're still going to have that, that conflict, that codependency, um, that blind spot within ourselves. And that's going to um, affect us in other ways. It you know, alienates us from ourselves, um, from knowing ourselves, from trusting ourselves. It affects our self-esteem. And usually it plays out in other relationships to greater and lesser extents. Right, right. That makes complete sense. Well, that's uh, a perfect transition of what I wanted to ask you about was uh, your book, Why You Should Date Emotionally Unavailable Men. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and uh, I know you touched on it just now, but um, I, I guess, can you repeat the, um, you know, yeah. the main concept? So that's, you know, that's one piece of it that I mentioned. But the subtitle kind of, you know, captures the essence. Use your unhealthy relationships to transform. You know, I've found in my personal life that there is nothing that is a greater threshing ground for my own spiritual development more than my relationships. Like somehow things get brought up and triggered that like don't come up as much in friendships or work or, you know, other things like somehow you know, relationships just have a way of people we're attracted to have a way of touching our nerves of like, you know, accessing our greatest vulnerabilities of sometimes bringing out the worst in us. And that's the opportunity because 
that, that doesn't happen if it's not already there. Like we go, this person treated me that way. And that's why I feel that way. That's a false, you know, narrative and a false view of the situation. It's really, this thing is already inside me, this insecurity, um, this unresolved conflict. And this person is just showing me where that is. And actually, if we can view it this way, is it's like a perfect guide and a perfect mirror for exactly where we need to go to heal, which mm. can be really challenging to know until those things are provoked. And so I see unhealthy relationships rather as like you're broken, you're wrong, as a really healthy striving toward healing. We're moving into this because there's something you know unresolved um, that we need to heal. And if you do it right, and if you see it as a, as a way to work on yourself, rather than just trying to change the other person and tell them they're wrong and get them to acquiesce in some way, then there's incredible amounts of growth that I can um, testify to in my personal life and um, as well in the people that I work with. I've just seen it a million times. And I've seen it a million times where people leave a relationship because it's an emotionally unavailable person and yeah. it doesn't work. If you, if you break up out of, you know, F you and I'm done and, you know, that kind of like um, attitude of just like a breaking point, um, it's not going to stick. Um, if you break up or at least you're not going to be resolved and at peace about it, you're not going to move on. Um, whereas if you really, I think of relationships, unhealthy relationships as like a spiritual surrendering process. Like you're really surrendering. Like you're like, wow, why do I like this person? I know it's messed up. Um, but there's something for me to learn here. Let me surrender to the lessons um, that are before me. And um, yeah, I find it really like a profound way to, to grow spiritually and psychologically. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this. Let's say a guy is dating a girl right now and she, and she's emotionally unavailable or there's some problem in the relationship. Should they just let it play out so he can learn these lessons? Or uh, do you think that he should just do some like reflecting right now? And then he's like, okay, she really isn't the one. Maybe I should just learn these lessons now today and then just move on. Well, it's, it's a really active process. It's not just mm -hmm. like, let it play out. You right. have to be yeah. much, like, otherwise, like, you know, you're not doing yourself. Anything. Right. Yeah. I'm saying. Yes. I'm saying surrender and wait until you get to a point where you truly are no longer interested. Right. Like my relationships where that they were unhealthy at first, I was just hooked in and there was that like kind of magnetism. I call it wounded magnet syndrome. Like we have wounded, wounded magnet syndrome. Interesting. We have these complementary defenses that like the, the polarity, the plus minus of magnets draw us together and hook us in. Um, we, you know, that is exactly what we need to work with, but we need to do that in an active process. Um, so, the way that I've worked with it is um, I it's a big part of it is really just showing up and communicating our truths vulnerably, humbly, compassionately um, with love. So there's, I have a few rules of communication and in my experience, when we approach, when we just show up and are truthful rather than trying to change the other person. And when we take responsibility for what's ours and we're open to hearing, you know, what, what our contribution is, unhealthy relationships organically resolve and we no longer are attracted to the person that that charge that electricity goes away when we resolve whatever our unconscious baggage is that is creating that polarity and that that draw yeah. so you know some of my rules for communication and this isn't all of them the book goes into it more but um one of them is you start with me you know you start with you know 
you know, I, I spent, you know, we have this dynamic between us and it's like you, you give a neutral description of the dynamic Yeah. You know, when this, you know, I noticed that, you know, I nag um, because I sense that you're distant and you distance yourself because I nag and we've gotten ourselves into this, this dynamic that neither of us like, you know, and, and I noticed that, you know, when I am, am nagging, I'm actually just feeling really scared. I'm feeling really vulnerable. I'm feeling afraid that you're going to leave me. Um, and instead of coming to you and, and looking into your eyes and saying, hey, are we okay? I'm worried. I'm, I'm, I'm sad. I feel alone. Um, I'm nagging you because I'm afraid to alienate you through being vulnerable. But instead, I'm alienating you through nagging you. So right. that's my part, you know, and then going and, you know, uh, kind of, I think the same might apply for you. I mean, first inviting their, you know, feedback, reflection, their point of view. Um, and hopefully your partner kind of volunteers that and owns up to it. Um, but if not, you can go, you know, and what I'm seeing with you is, you know, when you're feeling distant, maybe you can come to me and tell me how you're feeling, you know, are you feeling, um, are you feeling scared? Cause typically there's these kind of, um, there's attached different attachment styles. I call it Velcro people and uh, vanishers. So huh. Velcro people and the technical terms are preoccupied attachment and avoidant attachment. Yeah. I like the terms cause they kind of, they, they evoke what they, you know, the, the essence of pretty the, easy to understand. Yeah, exactly. So Velcro people, we all know them. They're the clingy people. They're the needy people. They want constant attention and constant closeness. And that's because their greatest fear is abandonment. And the only way they feel secure in a relationship is if they're in like constant contact. Um, whereas vanishers are people who feel safe, when they're by themselves, their greatest fear is being engulfed, um, losing themselves in somebody else. And so they're constantly trying to feel safe through distance. And that's this, again, this tug of war that we find so often in codependent relationships. Yeah. Um, so in any case, you know, the preoccupied, the Velcro person needs to learn to tolerate space and the, um, the vanisher needs to learn to tolerate togetherness and the, you know, a healthy, uh, secure attachment can tolerate both space and togetherness in balance. And both people need to learn to um, communicate their needs vulnerably again, instead of just trying to get the other person to be different, trying to get the other person to spend more time, trying to get the other person to give them more space. That just creates these kind of endless loops of fighting and um, tug of war that can just really be broken um, when we show up in a different way, when we address the core issue rather than just addressing the symptom. Right. So, I have this like stupid joke that I'm going to write a book called the dishwasher is not a proxy for love because every, every couple I've ever worked with, maybe with one exception in 10 years has like had blowout fights about the dishes. And like, really it's amazing. It just cracks me up because it's like, it's obviously not about the dishes, right? Yeah. Like, the dishes take on this like symbolic, like they, like so much gets displaced on these like, trivial like so you know these trivial objects yeah but really every fight is a dishwasher fight every fight is not about the thing you think you're fighting about it's not about the dish it's not about the in-laws with the kids mm -hmm. it's about how you're fighting it's about mm -hmm. how um it's it's about how are we we're not addressing the deeper issues which are the fears which are the doubts which are the are we communicating with kindness are we accusing each other are we being you know, blaming rather than, you know, just kind of trying to be a team and collaborate and understand how we can both improve. So those are the core issues. And these, 
these things that we get caught up in, like, are you spending more, you need to spend more time with me, um, are really just distracting us from dealing with the deeper issues. And then we never move forward. It's that hamster wheel. Hmm. Interesting. And, and uh, is this concept at all related to um, what I've seen on your website called washing machine relationships? So I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of household uh, metaphors. In I, I like them. Sprawlisms. <laughs> a couple. <laughs> Actually just those two, but the, the washing machine relationships is different. It's the idea that we just keep going back in that same endless cycle that we were talking about earlier, whether right. that's the same person or with somebody else, if we don't learn those lessons. Right. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I feel like, you know, me, me and my girlfriend have been dating for like a year. We haven't thought about the dishes yet. I'll have to, uh, <laughs> have to keep on the lookout for that one. <laughs> Just make sure you don't uh, get caught up in that, in the dish. Like you're like, okay, clearly this isn't about the dish. What's it really about? Right, right. Awesome. Okay, okay. I got one more question and then we'll jump over to our secret behind the scenes Q&A. Um, I also saw another, maybe maybe this is a sprawlism. Uh, what's broken compass syndrome? Uh-huh. So pop psychology tells us that because we're dating emotionally unavailable men, because we have these unhealthy relationships, we have a broken picker. There's something wrong with us. Um, we need to pick different guys. We need to pick the nice guy. Um, and one of the chapters of my book is called the myth of the nice guy. And yeah. it's this idea that we're supposed to like these guys who like really are not like just good guys. They're actually codependent. And huh. that's why we're turned off by them is because yeah. like, they're, they don't know themselves and they're trying to lose themselves in, the, in a relationship in the same way that, you know, often we do. And so we're like, Ugh, I don't want that. Yeah. So, um, the idea of broken compass syndrome is this, um, this cultural, uh, lore and misinformed, but well-meaning pop psychology that all of our friends and our family often instill in us is like, you're doing it wrong. You need to be less picky. You need to be more picky. You need to date nice guys. You need to, you know, stop dating these jerks. Um, it causes us to distrust our intuition. And then we don't get the lessons that we need. Um, we end up breaking up. We end up going through these washing machine relationships. Um, we don't, and our intuition is our most precious guide in life and in relationships. Um, if we're drawn to someone, our, our souls are telling us that there's something there for us. Doesn't mean they're you know, our partner for life, but there's something there for us to learn. Um, and overriding your intuition and trying to convince yourself to be with someone because they check some boxes and seem like a nice person is doing a disservice to yourself because you're really not listening to yourself, which means yeah. you're not loving yourself. You're not honoring yourself. You're not, you know, the spiritual and psychological process is about surrender. It's like, I'm flawed and I've got to surrender to that flaw and or to those flaws. And how can I learn from them and how can I grow from them? So broken magnet syndrome or broken compass syndrome rather is like that compass of intuition is broken because we have this string of unsuccessful relationships. We learn to distrust ourselves and then we override our intuition rather than using it as the important compass and navigational tool that it is. Right. That makes sense. Okay. What, what if, um, let me ask you this. If you're, if there's a single guy out there and he wants to get into a relationship, what's the number one piece of advice you can give him? Mm. Mm. What's the number one piece of advice that I can give a single guy looking for a relationship? It's a tough question for some reason. I don't know why. Um, I would, I mean, kind of back to our last comment. Um, yeah. I think that was my first response. I just didn't want to repeat myself. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's in your intuition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't 
it's really easy to convince yourself that somebody is right for you or should be right for you and then to feel bad about yourself for not liking them. And really, like, there's no right or wrong to love. There's no right or wrong to who we're drawn to. Um, and a lot of times we second guess ourselves and we try to force things that, you know, aren't really there. Or we have some feelings, like we have a strong connection, but there's something missing. We don't have that X factor. We don't have that full, you know, breadth of, you know, uh, what we want. Like we may have a deep connection um, emotionally and spiritually, but, you know, we don't have an intellectual connection or right. a creative connection, which can be really important to some people. And for some people, they don't care. They just want somebody, they want more of a companion, you know, so right. everybody's individual values are different and what they fall in love with. But there's a lot of like, I, ideas out there that are like, you just need to be realistic and stop like, you know, thinking that everything's just going to be perfect. It's like, of course, things aren't going to be perfect. But that doesn't mean that you can't be passionately in love with someone and have a healthy relationship. It's still messy. It's still hard. You still have to work through stuff and, you know, all these unconscious triggers that we inevitably find in relationships. Um, but that's the imperfect, healthy relationship. It's not, yeah. well, I just have to settle and like, be like, it's cool that I don't really love this person. There's actually this poem that I love called Date a Girl Who Doesn't Read. And it's all of that. It's like such a perfect, like it's too long for me to like share, but. Oh, damn. Any, I'll have to uh, put a link on it. If anybody's interested, it's just, it's sort what, of. What's, a, what's it called? It's called Date a Girl Who Doesn't Read. And it's like, <laughs> it's so funny. It's like sort of an ironic poem. And yeah. It's basically about uh, the fear that, of like finding like somebody you're truly in love with because they can hurt you. But it ta it's like date a girl who doesn't read, find her in the weary squalor of a, you know, um, a dive bar, you know, and find commonest interest in folk m music and build an impenetrable bastion on that ground. Just like the superficiality. And then it talks about like, you know, propose to her at your favorite restaurant and, you know, pretend that you don't feel your uh, stomach becoming a pane of broken glass or I'm not getting it exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just those relationships that are so like, you know, not the thing, not the juice, not the, um, you know, the challenge and they're just comfortable and safe and just kind of the, the path that happens. And it's, it's just, I love it. It's like beautiful. And then it, it talks about just like the terror of like what it, what it means, like what a girl who reads is and how she, uh, approaches relationships. I'm, I'm probably butchering it. You can cut this part of the interview if it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, definitely. My, my audience doesn't like poetry. <laughs> no, no, no. They're going to. They're going to like this one. <laughs> it's it's a good poem. I may not be capturing it quite, but uh, but check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, thanks so much, Brooke, for uh, coming on the show. We're going to jump into the secret behind the scenes for our, uh, uh, our clients and customers. Um, but before we do that, where can more people learn about you? Best way to learn about me is at mylatherapy.com. Um, there's a lot of information about therapy, our specific specializations. I'm not the only therapist in our practice. We have, you know, several therapists that have different specializations. So we really have the gamut covered. We also have wellness professionals, massage therapists, hypnotherapists, life coaching, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, even like stretch therapy, personal training. So we really have the whole gamut covered, but um, our, our main focus is psychotherapy and we have a huge range of really talented, wonderful clinicians. My rule is I only hire people that I like, yeah. um, that I like personally just really jive with, that are warm and open, that don't hide behind the veil of professionalism and that just know their stuff because 
I, you know, I just let them fly. I mean, we have consultation where we challenge each other it's every couple of weeks, but for the most part, I hire people that I just know they're going to do their thing and it's going to be great. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, when does, is your book out? It, I am hoping to publish it February 1st. I've been sitting on it for so long and it's just like the most minute details. It's like, I need to do like the table of contents and the back cover and yeah, get yeah. It to ebook format. It's like so simple, but like I have so many other priorities that it keeps getting, you know, pushed to the bottom because it's not technically urgent. Right. Um, yeah. But I do have like a likely feature in the New York Times and Oprah magazine coming up. Holy so shit. I need to get it out because those are kind of big, you know. Yeah, those are kind of big. That's awesome. Kind of big, really big. Um things that could drive a lot of people to the site. So I'd love to have it out ASAP so that, you know, um, I can have something to, you know, present when people visit my site other than just our, our therapy services. Right. That's awesome. And it's uh, why you should date unemotion- uh, emotionally unavailable men, right? Yeah. Use your unhealthy relationships to transform. The URL for that is mylatherapy.com slash unavailable. And okay. then if you're interested, like if you're somebody who's interested in interviewing me or, um, kind of hiring me for public speaking or workshops or anything like that. Um, my media experience and like press experience and speaking experience, video, film, um, et cetera, is all at brooksbrawl.com. It actually forwards to mylatherapy.com. Um, the press, there's also the press button on the navigation. So if people are interested in learning about that. That's, that's the place to find it. Brooksbrawl, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-P-R-O-W-L. Um, dot com or just mylatherapy.com and then I think it might be dash press but you can just press the um, press the press button on the far right of the navigation <laughs> wonderful uh, thanks so much Brooke we're uh, about to jump into the secret behind the scenes but uh, thanks for coming on the public show I appreciate it my pleasure want to see what the top experts have to say behind the scenes just go to modern biotech radio Com, and you'll get instant access to every behind-the-scenes interview for free. Now, these interviews are not for the public, so please don't share. But if you'd like to pull back the curtain with me and learn what secrets they reveal, just go to modernbiotechradio.com and get instant access to these interviews for free. Again, that's modernbiotechradio.com. If you'd like to learn the best-kept secrets, that they can't share publicly, but allowed me to share in private. Just go to modernbiotechradio.com and get instant access to all of these interviews completely free. I'll see you there.